you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't, it's on the one of the bulletin inserts you have. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The biggest threats to the doctrine and purity of the church will come from inside the church itself. Paul warns Timothy here, or has been. Satan and his minions will try to attack the church mainly by polluting the centrality of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ by deluding the minds of people so that they teach more than what is necessary. This is the greatest danger the church faces. Once a person's conscience is seared to the point that they no longer care if they're telling the truth, the damage that can be done to the church by such people is astronomical. But the Bible tells us, amazingly, that the way a person's conscience gets seared in the church, believe it or not, is by setting aside the sufficiency of Jesus to follow more rules as a means of honoring Him and setting aside the sufficiency of Jesus so that maybe the danger is that the less someone is able to meet the standards they create, uh, the more jaded they get. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe... Uh, when someone realizes they can't be as holy as they think they need to be, and they're in a place of teaching, maybe they'll start to lie and hide things, although they still look holy, and, and the fallout from this is deadly. Regardless of the reason, though, regardless of the reason why people sometimes give up on the sufficiency of Christ and go to more things, we need to be vigilant in understanding that false doctrine, that which is not the truth that centers on Christ, is the greatest threat to the church. We must heed the word of God in this. Godliness that Paul's been telling Timothy about is not found in a written code of man-made rules that result from speculation and thinking. Godliness has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, which means those who teach need to keep Jesus and what he has accomplished front and center before the church. The church doesn't need fresh, new perspectives. We don't need new words from the Lord or new revelation. God has not left us dependent on something we don't have yet. We need those who preach and teach in the church to beat the drum of Jesus for us in the gospel over and over again. Paul urges Timothy as the preaching elder in Ephesus, to keep watch on himself and the teaching so that all will be saved, meaning that the whole church will be saved by the elder's persistent proclamation of Christ in the gospel. Let's pray and look to God's word. Father, I ask you that for your name's sake, for your son, for the faith and hope of your people, that you would help me preach this morning. Consume me that your word is what comes out of me. And may everyone who hears be able to understand and desire to believe by the work of your Holy Spirit. This I ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Let me read verses 6 through 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. He writes, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. If we listen to the words of Scripture, we'll find that everything we need has been provided. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In other words, all the preaching elder, which is who Timothy was, is responsible for, is putting the right information before the church, such as what Paul has been teaching Timothy so far. The preaching elder is not responsible for, whether or not he's a good servant is not determined by, the results of what he does, but what he puts before the people. If Now think about how this is of benefit and for the protection of the people in the church that have to listen to the preacher. If the minister thinks of himself as responsible for your response to the truth, it will color how he presents the truth and possibly even what the truth is. But the minister isn't called to get results. He's not called, I'm not called to make you change. He is called to put the truth before you. That's it. It is required of ministers in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, or of stewards that they be found faithful to the truth, not successful. Think about Paul's reasoning here in light of the whole letter. Where, What are we dealing with in Ephesus in 1st and really 2nd Timothy? Speculation that is hurting the church, unbiblical speculation about laws and rules and Christian living. Where did all that come from? How does that start in the heart of people, particularly those who preach and teach? A lack of trust in the gospel to do the work. You're not seeing results, which means you got to change what you're doing. you got to change your approach. That's what the world will tell you. Uh, what is that saying? What, what is insanity to keep doing the same things and expecting different results, right? Well, the church just entirely goes against that trend because it must focus on the same things over and over and over again. The thinking becomes when when we believe, when, when men in my position believe that we're responsible for the results, we're responsible for your response, the thinking becomes, okay, I see what people are supposed to be doing. They aren't doing it. What do I need to do to make that change, right? They aren't listening, they aren't responding, they aren't changing, so we have to amp it up. We have to start pouring on things like guilt, more rules, right? We've got to buckle down because surely the problem is people aren't committed enough. So that's what I have to go after. I have to go after your commitment level. These people aren't listening. We have to pour on the guilt, pour on more rules, hoping, forcing them to change. Maybe that's the problem. They're not... Uh, there aren't enough rules. They aren't being pushed enough. And then the speculation begins because we start to think, well, what's here isn't sufficient. People really need a little bit more sometimes, an extra push to get them going. So I have to think what things would push you, what things would motivate you and get you to change. But being a good servant of Christ Jesus means simply proclaiming the truth, putting these things before the brothers and sisters in the church and trusting that it is God who will produce what He desires in people by the power of His Holy Spirit. All of it's by faith. Everything we do and have is by faith. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. Where? How? 
in the message that is being proclaimed, in the word of God. I can't let myself become motivated by fear or frustration with you, right? I have to fix my eyes on the truth and trust that God will make the church grow, which is what Jesus said he would do all the way back in Matthew. And yet we keep trying to do it. Jesus says, I will build my church. We'll say, here, let me help. The incredible Hulk doesn't need help lifting things, right? You're not, you're getting in his way. Just preach the truth, right? Tell everybody how amazing the Incredible Hulk is. I don't know that it's a good metaphor to think of Jesus, but it's not a direct, it's just for the sake of, just for fun. The church's role in this, in all of this, is not only to listen to and believe the truth, right, but to also believe along with the preacher, because this is what the preacher must believe, is that the truth of God's word is sufficient. We have to agree on that. We have to both see it that way. If we, if the church demands of its ministers that they make things happen, make the church grow, we're almost asking to be characterized by legalism and guilt and fretting and worry. Beloved, we all want the church to grow numerically. We all want the church to progress and mature. We want ourselves to progress and mature. Yes, we do. But it will not come about by guilt or force or sweat or willpower, at least not in a way that glorifies God and fixes eyes on Christ. That will come about, that type of growth, that type of progress and maturity will come about, according to the Bible, by the constant exposure to the truth. Right. Paul isn't telling Timothy something that will get no results or that is pointless. Just do it because I said so. That's not the reasoning. But remember, everything here in Timothy is flowing out of God's heart for sinners. In chapter 2, what did God reveal about himself? He desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, do this. Say this. Structure like this. Pray like this. Preach like this. Remember that. As we read through 1 Timothy, we must trust Christ in the Scripture. He is enough. What we win people with, we'll win them too. So if we quit trusting the power of the simple gospel to save people, to grow the church, we'll become dependent on our own selves and our own abilities and planning or preaching tactics, all those kinds of things. I think it was Spurgeon that might have said it originally. If you win people to your church through something like a carnival, right? Not that having a carnival or a festival is bad or something. That wasn't his point at all. It's not mine either. But if you win people to your church or to Christ, theoretically, through something like a carnival, you know what you have to keep doing? Keep having carnivals or those people will leave, right? You gave them something. They liked it. That's why they're here. You take that away. You quit doing that. And they realize they've been baited and switched and they're not here for that. And so it's it's best for the church to just trust Christ, trust his rate of building is correct and powerful. Part of living by faith is learning to trust the fact that God doesn't move by the same speed or the same means that we do. We all learn this in our own individual lives that, that God is, we, we learn as we go that God is always at work. It just turns out he's very rarely at work the way that we thought he was. It's no different in the growth and progress and maturity of the church. It's no different. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He just does things on a different scale. What we need to do is not try to assist in that and fuel that, but listen to it, honor it, submit to it. God isn't worried this morning about anything. He isn't stressing. Nothing that is happening in our church, nothing that is happening in our country is taking the sovereign God by surprise. He's not scrambling. He's not looking for a new plan. He's not looking for a new person. Everything is happening happening according to God's will. This is the source of our rest, beloved, not just in the direction of our country, not just in the direction of our church, but in our own lives. This never changes. He never changes. He's building his church through the gospel in the midst of all the evil and darkness happening in the world. He is still working. So the, if that's the case, the good servant of Christ Jesus then is being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that he has followed in verse 6. His quality as a minister is linked directly to his commitment to what has already been revealed in the word. Beloved, not in his talent or ability to come up with new things. So I'm not trying to innovate. We can't try to innovate. We need to remain desperately unoriginal. Which is why Paul tells Timothy in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's what all this stuff that's been going on in the church in Ephesus amounts to. It's not helpful to anybody. It's irreverent and silly. He's talking about this original speculation issue from chapter 1. It doesn't matter how holy and religious and put together things are that we create that go beyond the word. They're irreverent and silly if they go beyond the scripture. What do we think those rules are? They make you more reverent, more holy, more committed. God says, when you go beyond what I have said, it's irreverent and it's silly and it's mythical. And I want my preachers and teachers that are talking to my people to have nothing to do with any of it. Paul's reiterating this. He's telling Timothy, you don't get involved in all the stuff that's going on there. It it downplays the sufficiency of Christ. It gets people worked up talking and guessing things they can't possibly know. So much of what we crank out in evangelicalism just results in more guilt and more of a burden on people. What are dads are constantly hearing about how they could be better. Wives and moms are constantly hearing about how they can be better. Everybody's hearing about how they can be better. You know what? Everybody can be better. But you know what? Nobody's ever going to get good enough to not need Jesus. So why don't we talk about him? Right? It, it, beloved... The text will zero in on the life that is to come, not this one. So what has the most value? What is the point of speculating about things God hasn't made known? If God hasn't given six steps to a successful marriage, I'm not going to give it either. Right? It just just doesn't make sense. The truth that has been revealed, though, we're learning will never be enough for human nature. right? It, 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 what God has given will never be enough, as so we think so, for human nature. The gospel is the greatest story ever told, and we still want more. That is how you get caught up in irreverent, silly myths. It, it, every couple years, something so goofy comes along, and people, you know, the, the best-selling book, 
it's been several years ago now, was, was The Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. I don't know how many of you remember that book. There's this little line in uh, First or Second Chronicles about a gentleman named Jabez that prayed a certain way and lived a certain way, and so the, God enlarged his border, increased his territory. Well, this book came out that, you know what? If you live that way and pray that way, God will enlarge your border. Well, that was the best-selling book in Christendom. Amazingly, Christian borders haven't expanded in the last 18 years. So, so either he was wrong or they're not doing what the book said. Right? Those are irreverent, silly myths. I'm going to find a text in Scripture that I can just ride that train all the way to Yuma and just get people to buy into what I'm selling, and it's really new, and nobody's thought of it before. The amazing thing is that for almost 2,000 years of Christianity, nobody saw that. Nobody thought that. When you begin to hear things like this, beloved, you're being drawn into irreverent, silly myths. All those all those books every couple years that come out that some somebody almost died, or did die, went to heaven, came back, and now they have all this stuff to tell you. You know what's funny about that? It always just is funny to me. Has anyone ever, um, what's the name of that book? Revelation. Have you ever looked in the book of Revelation and seen how people, what is heaven like right now? What does Jesus look like right now? Do you feel like when you read Revelation that you could just kind of saunter in there in a sweater and khakis and have a good time? And bump elbows with everybody and talk to everybody and just get some cool info and come back. No, they're falling on their faces. And we're just visiting, sitting down in recliners. I'm going to tell this story when I get back. Paul was given a vision and not allowed to speak of it. So that he wouldn't become puffed up by what he saw. And we just crank out the books and every time people are like, I wonder, I wonder if this really happened. Look, at the end of the day, I don't know if it really happened, but I am 99. Nine, 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 ninety nine percent sure it, 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 it probably didn't. Okay. And another, here's the thing. Why is that so troublesome? Why does that matter? Because what those things subtly tell you is that what you have is not enough. And so you just need some type of extra experience, some type of extra pick me up. Uh, it just subtly undermines the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. The fight going on now, mainly in, in American evangelicalism, is not really over the authority of Scripture. It's over the sufficiency of Scripture. Right? The inerrancy thing, if, if you come out now and say the Bible's not inerrant or inspired, you'll sound like a kook. We've had councils about this. We've, we've, we've settled that issue more or less. Now the issue is, but is the Bible enough and sufficient to address the issues of our day. When the church's answer is no, beloved, it's the church and the culture that will suffer irreparably if God doesn't rescue us. What is here, what has been given, is plenty. And it's more than what we need. We, we just, we have to understand our flesh doesn't believe that. Our flesh is lying to us. It's lying to you, beloved. It's not your friend. It's not your friend. It's against you. The last thing your flesh wants is for you to believe that when God said he'll provide everything you need and then gives you this, you have it. We don't want to believe that's enough. So, so just, just be wary of, of new, of, of, it's not chronological snobbery. Like if it's new, it must be bad. It's not that. It's that this 
word is sufficient. And the minute somebody's telling you they found something new, or uh, do we really think God has hidden what is necessary, really necessary for you to be okay, that he's hidden it from us for more than 2,000 years? And it relies on somebody new in 2020 to find it for you. That undermines who Jesus is for you. That's why Paul is going after this so adamantly. Timothy, as a good servant of Jesus Christ, what you do, you train yourself for godliness. So, in other words, there is something worth diving into and giving yourself to and immersing yourself in and learning more about. It's godliness. Training your body physically in verse 8 is a wise pursuit. It has value. But godliness is a value in every way, not just physically. Why? Because it holds promise like bodily training does for the present life. Yes. Right. The word does hold promise for the present life. Yes. But also, and here's what makes it so amazing and beautiful, but also for the life to come. What is Paul telling him? Timothy, if it doesn't hold value for the life to come, don't invest yourself in it. What a way to live. And beloved, what is this godliness that he's to train himself for? Why is it so valuable? Because it's Christ. Do you remember chapter 3, verse 16? It's what godliness is. It is Jesus who holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Beloved, when we read the Bible then, the first question we need to be asking is, what is God teaching me about himself Right? He's revealing himself to me. But if we often, as we do, go immediately from the text to me, we're bypassing God. If the first thing we ask is, what does this mean for me? When that becomes the habit of our faith, the approach of our relationship with God, what can this book do for me today? We'll develop over time a distaste for theology, the doctrine of God, and Christology, the doctrine of his son. And we'll actually start to think that the truth about God and who he is and the truth about Christ and who he is are less important than other things or less practical, right? We're workers. We're human beings. We think it's only good if it's usable. It's all usable. We start to think the things of God and of his son are less important, less accessible, less relevant. We don't normally like doctrine, right? It's too distant. It's not relevant enough, not practical enough. Do we hear the scriptures this morning? Those are the concerns we develop that make us suddenly begin to question the sufficiency of scripture as it is. Beloved, of course, doctrine doesn't feel relevant or necessary to us. Do you know why that is? Because we're sinners by nature. The flesh that makes us crave more and better and new and different is waging war against our souls. Again, it's not serving our best interests. It it creates problems God does not want you to have. You begin to question things about yourself that Jesus has already covered, that you don't need to bear the burden for, that are not going to be fixed and made perfect in a cursed world, in cursed relationships. He's given us all that we need. We live in frustration and worry and anxiety and burdens because we don't trust him. That's really all Paul is arguing for. Look at Christ and believe him. 
Christianity is not a faith that's built over time by personal experiences and preferences. That's not the source of our faith. That's not what the Christian life is meant to be like. We aren't creating this life. The truth is creating us. In other words, nobody would would be so foolish as to read Gray's Anatomy in medical school and say, yeah, I get all that, but I'd like to do surgery this way. I think a liver does this. Right? I think a pancreas is for this. Which nobody knows what a pancreas is for, but... Right, just I, I, I think it. I think it should do this. I think, I think that hands should be able to do this. We have respect for Grey's Anatomy, right? For the book, not the TV show. Oh my gosh, the the the, the book, right? If we do this, we do this all the time in the world. We do it with with the. You don't go into McDonald's and order a hot dog, right? They don't have them, so why would you do that? The Bible is not, the Bible is not like letting us decide what's in it. It's, it's not a suggestion. It's not like a good, you know, I don't really care for that saying it's, it's a roadmap for life. Not, not really. Because it doesn't get that specific. Ever. It basically says the world is really bad. People are generally really bad. Christ is wonderful. He will save. He'll get you all the way home. He's going to win. Trust him. The end. That's basically, very basically, what's happening here. Almost every book of the Bible, when you think about it, was written really to correct wrong thinking or theological error, as though that was a major concern of God's in giving us this book, the true prophet's wrote against the false prophets. That's certainly true of Paul's writings, right? Brian Wolfmuller says that if, if God wasn't interested in correcting false doctrine, we wouldn't have a Bible. That's pretty good. We, we come to the Scriptures to find the truth. The truth about ourselves, yes, but in light of the truth about God. And when the truth is set against error, that's theology. right? That's theology. Doctrine, again, it's not a word that we love, It's the word that answers the most important question in the world, though. Who is this Jesus Christ? Who is he? What has he done? Why does he matter? The knowledge of the truth is life, beloved. This is eternal life. What is it? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's our Lord praying in John 17, 3. Again, I love what... Brian Wolf Mueller says here, our doctrine is our salvation. He's right. Is that not what Paul is telling us in this text? In other words, what we believe about Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy, you, young man, he says to him, don't focus on irreverent silly myths. Don't get caught up by every tide of new doctrine and innovative contextualization. You train yourself for Christ. Timothy, you focus on Christ, on godliness that's been revealed. The church doesn't exist to be a life coach for people. Offering them what they could find on Oprah with just a little Bible thrown in. That's not what we are. We exist to proclaim Christ. We exist to hold up, to proclaim the herald of salvation for sinners because our church and our community and our world is full of them. 
In verse 9, we find that verse 8 was another one of those trustworthy sayings that were deserving of full acceptance by the church. Paul keeps telling Timothy these things. Write these down in your head, Timothy. Remember them. This is integral to who we are, beloved, the minister's commitment to godliness as it has been revealed in Christ. Because we toil and strive to know him in verse 10. That's the toiling. That's the striving in the church. He's everything to us. And striving for godliness is ultimately a matter of what we will choose to believe. We understand this. It's a fight with our flesh to know and believe the truth. That's what it is to toil and strive for godliness. Because we have all of our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all humanity, specifically or especially of those who believe. Our goal for us and for the world is belief. It's that people would know him as a savior. That he wouldn't just be a savior, which he is, but their savior. Remember chapter 2, verse 4. The church's corporate prayer is mainly that all kinds of people would be saved because that's the heart's desire of our God. Therefore, we fix ourselves on who does the saving. Christ, in our belief, in our doctrine, in our faith, in our teaching, just saturated by Him. Listen to verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's an amazing Verse. That's an amazing verse. When Timothy was called to pastor in Ephesus, it wasn't like it was um, nice and secure and welcoming and they had had a meeting and voted on him. It wasn't like that at all. His position is not very secure. The Ephesian church was plagued by false teachers. Most of them were probably already in leadership. No call had been extended to Timothy. Paul had just looked at him and said, you know what, you're going to Ephesus and you're going to clean that mess up. So Timothy showed up on the doorstep of Ephesus, sent by Paul, not asked for. There's no indication anyone in Ephesus had ever asked him to come, much less appointed him or elected him to leadership. Paul had done that. 1-3 implies that Timothy isn't loving it. Second Timothy will pick up on that even more um, when you begin to see how, how afraid, how filled with sorrow and anguish and anxiety Timothy was. In this endeavor, he doesn't seem to be a take charge kind of guy. We can kind of deduce from what we read that he, he wasn't, he didn't have a very strong force of personality. Now we're finding he's not very old. He's probably in his mid thirties or so here during this time. That wouldn't, I guess, seem so young to us really, but in a culture where elders are highly regarded, much more unfortunately than they are now, in a church where the elders are certainly, well, probably all older than him, his young age, because of all that, is going to be a disability. He has to be nudged 
by Paul, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power and love and a sound mind. And his mild-mannered nature, his relative youth, probably are making him a target for critics. It's a very hard office for Timothy. And yet, the truth stands. In verse 11, what does he tell him? He talks like this to Titus. Command and teach these things. There is authority here. Timothy has the authority to both command the church and to teach them. Notice that. The church isn't given the right of deciding whether or not they will believe the truth. That falls to the elders to maintain. To the elders to say, this is what we believe, this is what we teach, period. And Paul maintained, or Paul supports Timothy in this. He's behind him. He knows his relative youth is making it hard for him. So Paul tells him in verse 12, don't let them disregard or disrespect you because you're young compared to them. Set an example that silences your critics. Right? In the way that you speak, in the way you behave, in the love you have for the people, in the faith that you have in Christ, in your purity as an elder, as a man. I was in youth group as a teenager. First Timothy 4.12 was the verse you would always use if you wanted to get away with doing something in the church that you knew the older people wouldn't like. You would just say, well, don't look down on me because I'm young. Well, there's, there's a little more going on here than that. This isn't a pushy verse for teenagers, right? This is a conduct verse for ministers. Especially if you're younger or less experienced or something. Paul is telling Timothy... Don't give people a reason to doubt or distrust what you say by your conduct. You see how God is protecting Timothy and protecting his church. Right? There are, there are realities in ministry. And if Timothy just kicks the door down and says, hey, it's straighten up and fly right my way or the highway, he, he's younger than everybody. He's presumably less experienced, certainly more so than Paul. And, but God, God doesn't, God is protecting the church. Timothy, you need to live in such a way that you don't become an easy target. That's on you, right? That's what he's telling him in verse 12. Don't give people a reason to doubt your authority. Don't give them a reason to go against it and to question it. Toe the line, he's telling him. In verse 13, the minister is to devote himself to the word of God. That's what verse 13 is saying. Look at that. That's amazing. To the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is preaching, that comes out of Scripture, and to teaching the Scripture, right? That echoes Acts 6, that devote yourself idea. When the deacons were first called, the elders must devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Those must be the priorities of the elder, especially the one who labors in preaching and teaching, which Paul talks about in chapter 5. The only authority an elder has comes from the word of God. If I don't have a text in my hand, I have zero authority. Right, But the Word is everything. The Scriptures need to be known. They need to be heard also in the church. That is why we see in verse 14 that part of what Timothy can look to in order to grow in confidence and be encouraged is that a council of elders had laid their hands on him. That was a thing. We would say it that Timothy had been ordained to preach and teach the Word in the church. So apparently... Parenthetically here, part of what a plural eldership does then is ordain and commission qualified men to ministry. It's a scary thing if people outside of the local church determine who can shepherd the local church. That needs to come from within the church's council 
of elders, biblically speaking. This is important, what we're seeing here. No one should have the authority to preach or teach in the church of Jesus Christ if a council of elders has not ordained or commissioned them to do so. Because the truth is so important. What is taught is so important. Remember, the Bible didn't prescribe tons of classes. There's a reason for that. Tons of classes means tons of teachers. And tons of teachers mean your potential for error and false doctrine is exponentially related to that. We should listen to the Word of God. Be very careful who you listen to, beloved. I'm not remotely saying, by the way, that anyone and everyone that does teach without the commission of a council of elders must be a heretic or must be teaching false doctrine, not remotely. We're simply saying the Bible gives an order and a structure. If a person undertakes to speak the word of God to the people of God, he needs to have been commissioned by the elders of a church to do that. If he hasn't done that, if he's unwilling to submit himself to that, we shouldn't listen to him, or at least be very careful if we do, right? The laying on of hands by the council of elders in the local church is the evidence of God's blessing on a man's ministry of the word. It's the confirmation of a gift that has been seen and recognized in a man that also meets the qualifications of an elder. Let all things be done decently and in order, Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 14. The church is not a free-for-all. Christianity is not a free-for-all, Right? But he's also telling Timothy, you've been gifted for this, young man. Remember that. God was speaking over you as a matter of prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you and agreed that you were called to this task. So you hold the line, right? The Spirit of God works through the means of the Word. right? When the council of elders reviewed Timothy, realized he met the qualifications to be an elder and was gifted to be one, they take that as prophecy. God is speaking over this man. They're not waiting for some extra biblical thing to happen. That was the way God ordained people to ministry. The elders simply reiterate this or support this. Look at verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul means that Timothy must be devoted to the word of God, which is where godliness has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Timothy is to be immersed in this. And notice, he will be progressing as he immerses himself in Christ. And that progress, that development is meant to be seen by the congregation. How the word is shaping me needs to be visible to you. See what God has done? Therefore, I have to be absolutely immersed in it at all costs, beloved. God has chosen to link my development and growth to yours by calling us both to an exclusive focus on Christ in his word. Notice that. Don't practice what is worthless then. Don't immerse yourself in irreverent silly myths, Timothy. Don't spend your time in speculation and discovery. Stay fixed on the word as it has been given. Immerse yourself in it. Practice it. Stay in it. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's the pastor's charge. 
That's it. This is the most sobering text in God's word for a preacher. Did you, I mean, do, do you hear that verse? Listen to that again. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's an interesting verse to put after verse 6. In verse 6, he, he told Timothy, he tells the preacher that the results aren't on you. Just the faithfulness. And then in 16, he says, if you persist in this, the result will be the salvation of you and your people. How can those two things be true at the same time? Because salvation is all of Christ. I'm just supposed to keep telling you that. The proclamation of the true doctrine of Christ is what saves people. The, the, the teacher and the hearer are going to be saved by the same thing or they won't be saved at all. Somehow our salvation is linked to the persistence of gospel proclamation. That's why this has to be taken so seriously. By persisting in this, Paul says, by being immersed in it, staying fixed on it, not letting myself get carried away by peripheral things, we will be saved. Now, is that a different doctrine of salvation? No. It's an echo of what we've always been told. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Paul meant what he said there. The proclamation of the word of Christ creates faith that saves sinners. This is what Jesus was showing us when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I call them. They follow me. Let me show you exactly what I mean, that my voice can actually raise the dead. That's how much my sheep can hear me. Lazarus, come forth. And he does. That's a picture of the life-giving word that the gospel is. Paul is just preaching Jesus here. The truth will create life. The means by which God raises the dead is the proclamation of the gospel, the life-giving word of Jesus that the gospel always has been and always will be. Right? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Why does he not have to hide that that's what he's for? Because it's the power of God for salvation. When you preach it, dead people come to life. Sinners are saved. Christians are renewed and strengthened. Why in the world then would I preach anything other than that? My words don't have any power. You see me try to fumble sometimes to find my place and my words don't have any power. My arguments don't have any persuasive capability for the life to come. Only the gospel does this. What, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans 10, 14. And so... Paul tells Timothy, you immerse yourself in Christ. You train yourself to know him and to see him and hear him in the word. You practice that. You devote yourself to that. You let the church see how it's shaping you. And you persist in teaching it no matter how much your opponents complain or question you or demand more. Because, Timothy, persistence in that is what saves both you and your people. And that's what we're after here.
salvation. Remember two four. The word of Christ in the gospel, Timothy, 24-7, 365. Don't let me hear you're saying anything else. Nothing more, nothing less, all day, all night, all the time. The main concern of Paul is the salvation of sinners because that's the main concern of God. How often does the Bible tell us that this is what God desires? They're talking about that in Ezekiel. Don't die. Don't die. Call out. Therefore, the call comes to the preacher and therefore to the church, as this letter has been making clear, to persist in proclaiming Christ. Nothing else can accomplish salvation, which is God's heartbeat. Again, 2-4. And nothing else will accomplish salvation, beloved. The whole church will be saved by the elders' persistent proclamation of Christ in the gospel. So this text makes the preacher ask himself what really matters to him as a pastor. It does. right? Do I want to be approved and commended by God or by men? Because remember, Paul says something very interesting. Um, oh, I can't remember exactly where. If, if, I, if, I wanted, if I still wanted to please men, 2 Corinthians, I believe, if I still wanted to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul just told me you cannot do both. You can't do both. You can't please men and be a servant of Christ. It's impossible. My commendation from God won't come from what I succeed in causing. So I, I have to get over myself as a pastor and preacher, right? That's what the Bible's calling me to. Don't think that you're the big deal here. Don't think it all hinges on you. That may sound very noble. It will kill the people, right? It, And the text is asking the congregation, what do you really want out of your pastor? What is biblical of a congregation to expect of its preaching elder? What, what is biblical to expect of him? So, beloved, we run in perfect harmony for the good of each other's souls in our community when I am devoted to proclaiming Christ as a perfectly sufficient Savior and you are devoted to hearing about Christ as a perfectly sufficient Savior. The more you and I move away from that, the more we move into places God never intended for the church to go, that's when the messes start. Right? When we get too far away from home and we don't have any understanding of what we ought to be doing, we need to rein it back in and stay under the shadow of Calvary. That's where the church is safe. That's where the church belongs. The gates of hell won't prevail against us there. can't base the core of my teaching on what you might prefer me to talk about, right? I have, I have to be fixed on Christ. Pray for me, please. That is not natural. That is not natural. All right? I'm, my craving is your approval. That's what I crave for in the dark. That's what I'm really anxious about and nervous about, right? Pray for me that God would make me grow up, that God would make me strong and make me into a man because that is a threat to you. Right? Me saying that is not noble. It's the truth. That is a constant temptation that I often give into. More than you may know. I, I, I have to be fixed on Christ. I'm called to be persistent in one thing. 
I need your prayers to hold me up so much. I have to be persistent in one thing, beloved, one thing. I, more than once in my life, have walked into the kitchen to get a paper to, or to get a drink and left the kitchen holding a full package of paper towels. It's the truth. I've done, I've literally done that more than once. I want a drink. Why was I in here? Oh, that's right. I need to bring the whole pack of paper towels back to the chair with me. That's my mind. That much of a distraction. I'm, I'm gone. If I need to, if I, if the main thing I need to remember to bring with me to work in the morning on Mondays is a bag of lemons. So I have lemons for my water, which is very important to me. You know what I'm going to remember? Everything but the lemons. Everything. Those are nice examples of what's going on in my brain. Right? I just, I, I, I'm, I need you to pray for me so much. So much. Persistence in one thing. We are a Jesus people. We proclaim salvation. We proclaim the truth of God's word. Again, if we're not doing that, we are of zero use to the world. We don't want more. We, we, we have to both be devoted, both of us, to teaching ourselves not to desire more than Jesus, beloved. It's persistence in one thing that saves us. The question, of course, is whether we'll agree with God in this or keep trying to be smarter than he is. We really have all we need for this present life and the life to come in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 8. I do you the most good when I'm immersed in him for your sake and for mine. Beloved, Jesus is a great Savior this morning. I'm not trying to sell you on a white castle. I'm trying to sell you on prime rib, which you don't need to do if you've ever tasted good prime rib, right? Jesus is perfect. He lacks nothing. And therefore, you and I don't either. So let's trust him. He'll hold us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Reign over us, God. Open the eyes of our hearts to believe, to see Jesus Christ in the gospel, in your word. Shape us with it, Father. Shape us with our understanding of Jesus in all things, in our church and in our lives and in our community. And we ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning as we look to him. Amen.